This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Well, my name is Ekemini and I am, I always have a hard time introducing myself because I don't, I do a lot of things, but I am a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, well, outside of Philadelphia. Um, just graduated in May, and so I write, and I speak, and I'm kind um, about racism and white supremacy, so I do anti-racism work, really, that's kind of where I am on the spectrum. And uh, I, ju I just can't abide racism. So, so when I see it, I call it out. And I do it boldly and forcefully. And it makes me friends. It makes me enemies. More enemies than friends. And I'm fine with that. You know, so I, I just understand that this is where God's placed me. And I'm sure of that. So um, today we are going to talk about some things that touch on those issues. But we're going to be talking about respectability politics. I'm going to explain what that is in a minute. I'm hoping to make it somewhat interactive, so some, you know, I need some participation from you in the beginning, and a little bit in the end. So hopefully, if you're not familiar with this, you will hopefully be experts by the end. Um, so uh, bear with me, okay? So let me get some things going here. Okay, so let me start off with uh, prayer, and we'll get going, all right? Um, Father God, we just thank you for your loving kindness in your grace, oh Lord, we just thank you uh, for this beautiful day that you made, oh Lord. We thank you, Father, that your name is majestic, oh Lord God, and, and it reigns, oh Lord, and that there's power in your name, Lord. And we're going to be talking about uh, a very sticky, uh, controversial, somewhat controversial subject right now um, within the Black Lives Matter movement, oh Lord. And in light of a lot of the racial injustice and oppression that we're experiencing, we're trying to figure out how we can um, fight this and dismantle it, Lord. So would you speak to me and through me? Holy Spirit, have your way. Move me out of the way. Um, and let your people hear a word, oh Lord God, that will be practical, that will be helpful, um, that will help to reorient their mind, oh Lord God, around these issues. Uh, have your way, God. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Are you not paying attention? People with their hats on backwards, pants down around their crack. Isn't it a sign of something? Or are you waiting for Jesus to pull his pants up? Isn't it a sign of something when she's got her dress all uh, I mean, her dress all the way up to the crack and got all kinds of needles and things going through her body? What part of Africa did this come from? We are not Africans. Those people are not Africans. They don't know a damn thing about Africa with names like Shaniqua. Shaligua, Muhammad, and all that crap, and all of them are in jail. When we give these kids these kinds of names, we give them the strength and inspiration and the meaning of those names. What is the point of giving them strong names if there is not parenting and values to back it up? Now that is an excerpt of Bill Cosby's infamous pound cake speech that he gave in, uh, at the NAACP's uh, 2004 um, 50th year um, anniversary of the um, Brown versus Board of Education. So by a show of hands, who has heard of respectability politics? Okay, good. Okay, a good number of you. Okay, so what came to mind as I read that quote from Bill Cosby? You can... School. Yell out some things. Okay, school. Uh-huh. What else came to mind? 
Dress? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. What else? Judgment. Oh, okay. Uh huh. Judgment. Fear. I always struggle with how to spell it. Fear. Fear. Okay. Anything else? Superficial. Okay. Identity. Okay. Uh huh. Identity. Okay. Humanity. Mm hmm. Shaming. Mm. That's good. Yep. Shaming. Anything else? Narrow. Narrow. Okay. And now, in light of what we know about Bill Cosby, ironic, right? <laughs> very, very ironic. So, okay. So keep that in mind, okay? Now, the rejection of the term and philosophical idea that undergirds um, respectability politics, um, also known as a politics of respectability, I'm going to use those terms interchangeably. Okay, it's a central tenet of the Black Lives Matter movement to actually reject respectability politics. Now, the purpose of this talk is to interact with historian Dr. Evelyn Hickenbotham's seminal work and her definition of the politics of respectability. Now, her book is actually entitled Righteous Discontent, The Women's Movement in the Black Baptist Church from um, 1880 to 1920. Okay, so that is the text that I'm working with here, okay? So in, in examining her construct of the politics of respectability, I'm seeking to reappropriate the term by understanding its original context and meaning and, and what gave rise to that strategy at that time, okay? So building on Dr. Evelyn Higginbotham's construct, I am reimagining re respectability politics by providing a new construct rooted in the Imago Dei and our covenant with the triune God, okay? Now, I'm saying construct instead of definition. Uh, because she's not necessarily coming up with this concept out of the blue. She's a historian, and so she's observing something, a strategy, a strategy that was actually happening among the women at that time, and so she put words to that. So that's why I'm saying it's more of a construct than it is like a hard-line definition, okay? So let's begin. Okay, so now I don't want to assume that we all know what the current meaning of respectability politics is, so I'm going to go ahead and provide um, the definition, just something that I've come up with, okay? Uh, and I want to actually de define what respectability politics is and how it is understood by millennials and activists within the movement, okay? So here is um, BLM's respectability politics construct, okay? It holds that if black people dress in a particular manner, style their hair a certain way, obtain degrees, speak proper English, and police their behavior by conforming to white cultural values, morals, and norms, we will be granted racial equality and be treated better by white people. Okay? So here are a few ways that Black Lives Matter, and I'll say BLM too, so I'll be switching between that because it's just easier. <laughs> so here are a few ways that BLM critiques, okay, uh, respectability politics. So the movement was founded by three black women. Uh, two of the three are identified as queer. They fight on behalf of those who have been treated unjustly, regardless of their background or sexual orientation. So they don't care if they have a squeaky clean background or not. They're going to represent and fight for their rights, okay, and fight for justice on their behalf. And they also use disruption as a protest strategy. Okay, so those are just a few ways that they actually critique respectability politics. So now that we are all on the same page with regard to what respectability politics is, I'd like to examine its original meaning and context as given by Dr. Higginbotham. So I'm going to give a little historical background that um, kind of frames 
the book. And so you get an idea of what she's talking about, how this even came to be. Then I'm going to go over the racial context at that time as well. So the women's movement in the Baptist church occurred in 1880, I'm sorry, from 1880 to 1920. The women of the National Baptist Convention, USA, formed the Women's Convention, which is an auxiliary group. And at that time, it had more than one million women as a part of the convention, okay? These women were one generation removed from slavery, and they established the convention in 1900. The convention was formed at a time when gender consciousness was on the rise and white supremacy was ubiquitous. And now, owing to the indefatigable work of nearly three generations of women, the convention founded the first school for black women by black women, and they exercised their agency through self-governance. They elected leaders within the convention. They gained visibility within their patriarchal denomination while simultaneously fighting against racism, segregation, and for voting rights, okay? So this is intersectionality at Finitum. They're dealing with their gender issues, race issues, and you know, all types of things. Now, the racial context, okay, was that we have to understand that at that time, the image of God and dignity and humanity within black people was assailed and marred, okay? From stereotypes of pop culture, for example, we have W. Um, D.W. Griffith's 1915 film, Birth of a Nation, um, to Jim Crow propaganda that depicted black women as sexually immoral, prone to licentiousness, while black men were uh, presented as brutes, enslaved to their sexual passions, and with a predisposition for rape, particularly the rape of white women. Okay? Now, it goes without saying, but lynchings okay, were also rampant during this period in history. Now that we have that background, and racial context and view, we can now examine Dr. Higginbotham's okay, construct of the politics of respectability and understand what gave rise to this movement um, and situate you know, the women and their philosophy within that historical context. Okay? Now, Dr. Higginbotham's politics of respectability construct holds, okay, and I'm quoting, the politics of respectability emphasize reform of individual behavior and attitudes both as a goal in itself and as a strategy for reform of the entire structural system of American race relations. The politics of respectability assumed a fluid and shifting position along a continuum of African-American resistance, okay? That's gonna be important to hold on to, so it's fluid and shifting, okay? And respectability demanded that every individual in the black community assume responsibility for behavioral self-regulation and self-improvement along moral, educational, and economic lines. The goal was to distance oneself as far as possible from images perpetuated by racist stereotypes, okay? So I wanna pull out three key points from um, Dr. Hickenbotham's uh, construct. Okay, so the first is moralism, which is checking our behavior, if you will, okay? Then we have class stratification, Okay, so she mentioned like um, economic lines. Oh, wait, hold on, sorry. I'm on the spelling struggle bus today. Okay, okay, so, okay. And then three, assimilation. Okay. All right, and I'm gonna, I'll talk about that a little bit later, but I want you guys to just have that in mind there. Okay, so. BLM's respectability politics construct is flattened, okay, in comparison to Dr. Evelyn Higginbotham's, okay? BLM's construct captures the assimilational thrust, okay, 
because in the BLM contract, they're saying, no, we don't want to have to assimilate to white, middle class, moral values, and all of those things, right? So they're like, mm, we don't want that, okay? Then they talk about, um, they, they also clap, um, capture the class stratification. So they're saying, we don't care if you have money, you don't have money. If you dress well, you don't dress well, we're going to represent you, right? Um, and then also the moralism. Well, you know, we're in a very pluralistic society. Not everybody's a Christian anymore. And even if you are a Christian, it's kind of like, well, my Jesus says this, your Jesus says that. So there's a lot of relativism now, right? So all of that they issue. Okay. So they flatten that, those categories. And so they capture all of those things. But within Dr. Evelyn Higginbotham's construct, these categories are reflected in their construct and thought of as an end in and of itself, okay? So what BLM fails to recognize is that the moral component is what motivated the progressive aspect, okay, the protest aspect, which resulted in grassroots organizing and protests. Their Christian faith was the catalyst for boycotts, confrontation, petitions, and peaceful protests. Their moralism was never divorced from their actions, okay? So the politics of respectability was actually subversive as it challenged white people for failing to live up to their own standards, okay? So according to Dr. Higginbotham, the politics of respectability, and I'm quoting here, provided the platform from which black church women came to demand full equality with white America. Speaking up for rights constituted not the antithesis of respectability politics, but its logical conclusion, okay? So it was not an end, an end in and of itself, but it led to actual protests and actual action, okay? Now, regrettably, the black Baptist women echoed racist stereotypes and arguments about black people, placing the root cause of racial injustice squarely on the shoulders of those who refused to conform to the tenets, okay? In so doing, they inadvertently perpetuated white supremacy while obsessively focusing on individual behavior, blaming victims, we heard someone out here, right? Um, blaming victims of racial oppression for their plight. On its own terms, BLM's construct of respectability politics captures this unfortunate aspect very well. And for these re reasons, BLM activists are correct, okay, in rejecting it as a viable strategy, okay? Now, and, I'm sorry, as a viable strategy in our present freedom struggle. So they're right to reject it, okay? Now, for my part, just me, I'm speaking for you myself, I reject it, okay, for the same reasons. And on the biblical admonishment found in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, that we are not to compare ourselves amongst one another, okay? People are not the standard. God is, okay? And white people don't have the corner market on morality. So, that is, so we need to get that together. So, so, for the time period that Dr. Higginbotham was referring to the politics of respectability, uh, this was an effective strategy of resistance, okay, used by the black Baptist women. It was later adopted by civil rights, um, leaders in the civil rights movement. They would emphasize that people dressed in church clothes, um, retaliation was not allowed, when they were violently provoked, and they also refused to rally around victims who have questionable moral backgrounds. Okay? As Bible-believing Christians, the question for us to answer, and this is really important, the question for us to answer is not whether or not we should accept or reject the politics of respectability. Okay? Rather, the question we need to answer is this. Is Dr. Higginbotham's politics of respectability construct a viable strategy for us in this present freedom struggle, or 
do we need to reimagine the term, okay, and its implications for our present civil rights movement, okay? Now, I answer negative to the former and in the affirmative with respect to the latter. We need to reimagine it, and we need to, you know, probably reject Dr. Hickenbotham's, and I'm going to explain why, okay? Or reimagine it. We want to reimagine it, not necessarily reject Okay. Now, respectability politics reimagine. Okay, this is the construct that I'm building off of that I've come up with, okay? Respectability politics reimagine is the construct that I submit to you today. I posit that respectability politics reimagine demands that we peacefully protest, boycott, and petition any and all under systems that threaten our inalienable rights. And we do so in a manner that reflects the triune God in whose image we have been created. Okay? I'll repeat that again. Respectability politics reimagined demands that we peacefully protest, boycott, and petition any and all unjust systems that threaten our inalienable rights, and we do so in a manner that reflects the triune God in whose image we have been created. Okay? So what does it mean to be in the image of God? Okay? I'm quoting Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay? Now, Imago Dei is Latin for image of God. According to theologian Herman Bobby, he says this, The whole being, therefore... And not something in man, but man himself is the image of God. Now that has significant implications for black people because our dignity, humanity, and our appearance has been attacked since 1619. Okay? This means that our entire being, soul and body, that includes our blackness, okay, our kinky curly hair, our wide set noses, which is a reference and to the description that the cop gave before he killed, murdered. Philando um, Castile, okay? Reflect the image of God. All of that reflects the image of God, okay? So according to Bobby, man does not simply have the image of God or bear the image of God. Man is the image of God, okay? We got to get that. That's important, okay? It's very powerful, actually. So we are in the image of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To be fully, fully human is to be in the image of God. Without the Imago Dei, we cease to be human. Okay, we're no better than Spot. Okay, and so you've heard it said, Spot being a dog. Okay. So, so, <laughs> I, I don't have a dog, so I'm just like, oh, fine. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm sorry, Spot being a dog. Okay, now you've heard it said that sin is what makes us truly human. No, okay? That is a lie from the pit of hell, okay? Sin dehumanizes us, okay? This is why the sin of racism and white supremacy are particularly heinous because it's an attack on the image of God, okay? This is why we boldly proclaim that black lives matter, period. No qualification, okay? This is why we protest, boycott, demonstrate, and sign. Okay, petitions. Because the image of God in black people is not esteemed, okay? Not recognized. And when unarmed black men and women are killed by the police, not only is the image of God assaulted, but God is also assaulted, okay? Genesis 9, 20, no, sorry, Genesis 9, 6 captures, okay, the gravity of murder, 
Okay? Now, one does not need to be a believer in order to know that they are in the image of God. Their innate knowledge of this is actually intractable, okay? Unbelievers may describe the Imago Dei with terms like humanity, dignity, intrinsic worth, and value um, for the lack of a biblical category. But they know this to be true in their very souls because God has implanted that knowledge, okay, within every man. Additionally, by virtue of the fact that believers... Oh, sorry, did I... Sorry. Okay. Additionally, by virtue of the fact that believers and unbelievers are made in the image of God, we are all in covenant, okay, with this one true triune God, okay? Now, in Genesis 3, 6, 7, the first Adam, who was the father of us all, all mankind, and our covenant representative violated his covenant with God and ushered in the fall and was in covenant disobedience. And as our representative in the fall, he ushered in the fall and was in covenant disobedience. And as a representative, his failure became our own. Okay. Now, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who was promised to us in Genesis 3, 14 to 15, he kept the covenant with God Okay, and did what the first Adam failed to do. For those who are in Christ and as our covenant representative, okay, his victory is counted as our own. For more on this, we can see Romans 5, 12 through 6. 11, okay? And listen to my lecture from last year. I gave a lecture called um, Eschatology of Black Lives Matter. So I'm kind of giving more of the reason why we should be fighting and why we should be backing that because there's actual theological reasons for that. Um, so you are either, and so you see there is no middle ground here, okay? You are either alive in Christ and dead to sin or you're dead in Adam, okay? And alive to sin. Okay, so you're either uh, under one of those federal heads, what we theologians call the federal heads, headship, okay? Um, so, so as such, you're in covenant obedience, okay? Or you're in covenant disobedience. Disobedience being in Adam, covenant obedience being in Christ, okay? And when you're in covenant disobedience, you're suppressing the truth in wickedness and unrighteousness, according to Romans 1, 18 to 32. Um, and also Romans 6 and 11 carries this idea out. So, why does it matter that we're in the image of God and in covenant with the same God? Respectively, Paul Schiff's reimagined centers the Imago Dei over against moralism, okay, which is a central tenet of Dr. Higginbotham's construct. This accomplishes several things. Okay, so respectability politics reimagined and eliminates barriers to entry and broadens the tent, thereby including believers and unbelievers, because we are all image bearers. So if you recall, moralism was kind of in her construct depended upon how one acted, dressed, and spoke. Partially, it, it also contributed to the class stratification because these were women who, they didn't have much means. Okay? They're one generation, two generations removed from slavery. You know, we were obviously eliminated and, um, you know, just barred from being able to really make income, you know, for ourselves. So obviously it wasn't based on economics that the class division sprung. It had to do with how you were carrying yourself how you dressed and how you spoke. People that didn't want to assimilate were considered to be lower class. Those who did assimilate were higher class, okay? So, so respectability politics reimagines gets rid of these barriers to entry, okay? So in respectability politics, we are getting rid of class stratification. That's no longer an issue. We're, we're showing moralism because moralism is not good according to the word, right? It's not enough, it's not enough. So respectability politics, it takes us beyond moralism 
which is shallow and results in nothing more than behavioral modification, yeah, okay? Right. Moralism also reduces the gospel to a form of self-help, okay? So don't misunderstand me. Good character and integrity are important, but no one is good, according to Romans 3, 10 through 12, okay? This is precisely why Christ died for us, because our sins lead to self-reliance. For those who receive Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within and incrementally produces good works, character, and integrity within the believers. Now, within respectability, politics, reimagined, and for Christians, assimilation is still upheld. You're like, what? Why? What's happening? I thought you said. Okay. It's still a help for Christians. Um, but we are assimilating or conforming to the image of Christ progressively. Okay? Through the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. Not in man's fallen notions of morality. Okay? Now, here's the point. Respectability politics holds that because we are in the image of God, we fight against any and every threat against the Imago Dei. Additionally, by virtue of the fact that we are in the image of God, we are also in covenant, this triune God, which means we have a responsibility to obey God. So we can't be doing everything that everybody else is doing in this fight, okay? Now, the image of God within us cannot be severed from our covenant with God and our obedience to him, which in turn means that we have a responsibility to reflect God's image as we live out the gospel imperatives. Okay. Ultimately, this is what motivates our pursuit of justice because the God in whose image we were created is the God of justice. Now, that is not the sum total of who he is, but he is nothing less than that. Okay. Therefore, when we pursue justice by employing peaceful protest strategies, we are reflecting God's image and correcting oppression, as we're instructed to do in Isaiah 117. And um, this is one of many ways that we love our neighbors well. Okay. According to Luke 10, 25 to 37, Mark 12, 30 to 33, and Matthew 22, 39. So. A common misconception regarding respectability politics is the notion that it renders its adherence docile, passive, and ineffective. However, this is a misappropriation of the term, as we have observed earlier, okay, and rejected. Now, Dr. Higginbotham's construct and my own does not preclude confrontation. It requires it, okay? Now, this is where scripture is particularly instructive. I know you guys are like, what's happening? Are we talking about Jesus or not? Okay. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, it is anachronistic, okay, to say that the patriarchs and the matriarchs, you know, and Jesus practice respectability politics, okay? So we want to avoid making one-to-one -one correlations because at least the eisegesis, and we don't want to do that, okay? That's not good. However, the principles our respectability politics are in the scriptures. Okay, and I have three examples. Take Moses, for instance. He was born a Hebrew, and yet he was raised the son of Pharaoh's daughter. According to Exodus 2.19, he passed as an Egyptian. Okay, yet when he came of age, he relinquished his privilege, embraced his ethnic identity as a Hebrew, and chose to be mistreated and oppressed alongside his, kins his kinsmen, according to the flesh. Um, that's found in Hebrews 11.25. Thereby, embracing the image of God as it is reflected in his ethnic identity, along with its intended sufferance, okay, and everything that came with it, he, he gladly took it on. Moses could not bear to see his people, fellow image bearers, subjugated under the weight of an unjust, oppressive system. Called by God by way of covenant, Okay, covenant. All you know, I'm a good reform person now. So, <laughs> all by God, by way of covenant in Exodus three, 
he liberated his people through confrontation, protest, and demanded that Pharaoh let his people go. Okay? You're not convinced there? Okay, let's look at Esther. In the book of Esther, we see that Queen Esther's bravery, we see actually her bravery on display, okay, as she escaped certain death when she defied the law and entered the king's inner court without a summons, okay? She revealed her ethnic identity and numbered herself among the Jews who were to be killed when she told the king about the plot to annihilate them. Now, if you recall, Bobbing said that the image of God includes our whole being, body and soul. She thought it better to petition the king on behalf of her people and risk perishing with them than to hold on to her privilege by concealing her ethnic identity. Her petition was granted and the plot to kill the Jews was foiled. Okay? Last, we go to Jesus, our Savior. Jesus is the image of the invisible God according to Colossians 1.15 and the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. So when we think about the image of God with respect to the Son, this brings into view his status as eternally co-equal, okay, with the Father and the Holy Spirit as the creator of all things, okay? So we don't, we, we reject subordination, okay? That's just an mistake. Okay? <laughs> he saw that God the Father was not being worshipped and glorified as he ought to have been, according to Luke. 1945, John 2, 13 to 22, Matthew 21, verses 12 to 15, Mark 11, verse 15. Jesus entered the temple, and upon seeing the money changers and merchants conducting business in the temple, the house of God, righteous anger and zeal for his father's house consumed him, and he confronted them by overturning their tables and chairs, okay? That is respectability politics. We imagine we're getting a glimpse of what this looks like. Okay, so from these examples, we see how the principles of respectability politics we imagine motivated the confrontations and pro protestations of Moses, Esther, and Jesus. Now, BLM rejects this strategy, but it is a strategy that still manifests itself within the movement. Okay, so now we're going to get to the fun part. Damn it. Now, let me, uh, okay. Abolitionist Breed Newsom, okay? Last summer, I can't remember if it was June or July, I think it was July, she climbed the South Carolina State Capitol flagpole and took the Confederate flag down. And as she unhooked the flag, this is what she said You come against me with hatred and oppression and violence. I come against you in the name of God. This flag comes down today. And she recited Psalm 27, actually, while engaging in her act of civil disobedience. Okay, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Okay, so this is one example of how respectability politics manifests itself right now in the movement. Now we have Tess Asplon. Does anybody remember this image? Mm -hmm. Remember this woman? Mm -hmm. Very brave woman. Tess Asplund, she's a black um, Swedish woman who witnessed 300 neo-Nazis holding a rally and marching in the street. And this is what she said. I don't know if she's a believer or not. Remember, it doesn't matter if they're a believer. Well, you know, eternally, yes. But you know what I mean. It, 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 it goes with regard to respectability politics. There's no limit. Everybody's included, okay? And so, I don't know if she is. But this is what she said. Um, and when she saw... 300 neo-Nazis in a rally, you know, upholding white supremacist ideology. She said this, it was an impulse 
I was so angry. I just went out into the street. She just, something was compelling her. She didn't even know what it was, but she just, she had to go out and stand against this arm of, this band of 300 and neo-Nazis, okay? And put her fist up and say, no, not today, okay? <laughs> so that's Tess Asplund. Man, third example. Mm. Yes, so I think we all remember this, Lashia Evans. This is very recent, Baton Rouge, um, behind um, Alton um, Sterling's uh, murder this summer. Lashia, she attended a protest in Baton Rouge over the death of Alton Sterling, and this is what she said. I just need you people to know. I appreciate the well wishes and love, but this is the work of God. I am a vessel. Glory to the Most High. Okay, so clearly Lashia is a Christian. Okay, now... In conclusion, I am seeking to provide a framework for engagement for us as Christians, but also for unbelievers. For your consideration, I put, um, I presented three definitions, okay, or constructs of respectability politics. The alleged construct, which has been misappropriated, Dr. Higginbotham's construct, which is centered on moralism, okay, and my construct, respectability politics reimagined, which is re rooted in the Imago Dei and our covenant with God, okay. Now, the first definition demands nothing of us, okay? BLM and its sympathizers rightly reject the term, but they offer nothing in its stead, okay? Now, Dr. Higginbotham's definition, or construct, sorry, is nuanced and complex, but it is centered on moralism. Thus, her definition demands too much of us. Now, my construct, respectability politics reimagined, is centered on the Imago Dei and our covenant with the triune God, okay, which applies to everyone. It doesn't ask too little, and it doesn't ask too much of us. Rather, it asks that we become what we are. So, put some respect <laughs> on respectability politics, imagine, okay? And let's get free. Okay, so now, that concludes my presentation. Now, I, we have a little bit of time and I'm going to leave it up to you guys. We have until 2.15, right, Bo? Yes, sir. They passed me okay. that now. So, do you guys want to do a Q&A? Really what I do is, I usually have you guys break up into groups and just think for five minutes about some, maybe some current examples. Now that I've given you a new construct of respectability politics, think about maybe some other examples, kind of like similar to the ones that I've given here, of where you've seen this pop up. Now, something's happened recently. I ain't gonna give you any more hints than that. Mm. But there, this, it's popping up, mm. you know, um, everywhere. But I think you just have to think a little bit further. So, do you guys want to break up into groups and do that, or do you want to just ask me questions? Up to you. We have ten minutes. So. Ten minutes. Just ask questions. Okay. All right. Great. Then let's let's do that. So, questions. I know that was a lot. Okay. I know that was a lot. Oh yes. I have a question. Yes. Um, so. I guess I want to know why you, I shouldn't say feel the need, but want to say the term at all. Right, yeah. Um, I think it's important because we're Christians. We have to have um, some sort of standard. You know, we, we're, we're accountable to the God who's made us. You know, and so I don't think that it's, it's necessarily a bad thing, but I think it was centered, in some, in some senses, it was centered um, on trying to conform to whiteness, and that's not the requirement. 
it's just sent, we, we're called though to live out the gospel, you know, in a particular way. And now it manifests in different ways though, which is why I showed, you know, these different examples. You got Brie climbing up a pole, you've got this one just standing there regally against the cops. But I think that we have to, I think that we can redeem it because, and I don't know, I don't want to say redeem because it, it has um, a Christian um, root. It's just that they, they took it, they, they, they made it moralistic more so than gospel um, centered, whereas where you see the spirit that's actually at work in us. So I don't know if I want to say redeem, but I think it's still something that's viable, but I think it needs to be reimagined, you know? Um, and I think it's, I still think it's useful and I think it's happening right now. And Dr. Higginbotham would probably agree that all of these examples are um, an example of respectability or politics of respectability, but I'm pushing the definition further or the construct further beyond moralism, you know, and more so into something that, that, that even unbelievers are, exp are expressing because they know that they're in the image of that. So I think it's important for us to try that. I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel. I really don't. We've been here before in the past, you know? And so I, I just think that what the forefathers and our, our matriarchs have done before was effective, but I think that we have to revamp it in our, um, in our society because people don't really care about moralism much anymore, right? So. So yeah. Any, any other questions? You were saying that on one side um, there's too much moralism, and then on the other side um, you're kind of left with nothing to stand on, right? There's nothing in its place. Mm -hmm. And so thinking of people in my life who have said things like what you read at the beginning, yeah. And I'm wondering how we take these ideas and distill them down into something. More tactile. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, how do you explain that? Um, the, the politics you imagine to someone um, who may need some more hands and feet, or, the, or like a more specific example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think what a, a lot of what was wrong with Cosby's um, quote was a lot in there. There was a lot of anti-blackness. A lot of anti-Africanness, okay? Um, I think Christina talked about how that works itself into us, to, even into people of color. And so I think that it was dehumanizing, you know? And so, so you know, and it was very stereotypical, you know? Um, and, and presented black people as one-dimensional. And so with respectability politics, I'm putting a big emphasis on the Imago Dei because that's you know, our humanity, that's really what we're fighting for at the end of the day, the recognition of our humanity. And because we're human like everybody else, we deserve equal rights. You know, and so I think that gets us from this whole, oh, well, pull your pants up, you know, and that's what Bill was saying, pull your pants up, do this, do that. Well, you don't have to pull your pants up. You even that, Whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter. <laughs> that does not have any bearing, you know, on who God has made you um, to be. You know, now because you are in covenant with this God, though, there's obligations. There's things, there's a particular way you should be um, um, presenting yourself, not physically, but 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 what um, Pastor Russ was talking about yesterday, putting on clothes, taking off the old, okay, so malice, you know, um, um, sexual immorality, those things that he was talking about. We're talking about ethical, you know, clothes, if you will, not actual physical clothes here if that's helpful so I think it's trying to get people to see humanity black people are humans yeah. this is what is at stake all the time this is what we're talking about here we are humans like everybody else and so that's what we're trying to get we need people to see that and recognize that so if that's helpful so that's why I'm wanting to shift it 
you know, in, on Imago Day, and then because we're in the image of God, we have there's a certain way we ought to be caring ourselves, you know. So, oh yeah, let me make sure. I did. did anybody else have a question before you? No. Okay. Well, so one other question as a follow-up. So, uh, from what I've heard from Black Lives Matter activists, mm -hmm. uh, not only locally but you know nationally, mm -hmm. like on Twitter, um, the replacement of respectability politics and the foundation of their um, you know moral or ethical kind of code, they iter they they articulate very clearly as hope and love. And and I know that probably has different definitions depending on your religious background, but I, I see their actions of being self-sacrificing and commitment, commitment and even forgiveness and all of these types of things, right? So I, I'm just asking, like, um, when you said that it, they have nothing to replace it with, so how do you how do you contextualize what they're actually saying about... Yeah, no, that's a good question. That's a valid question. And yeah, hope, love, that's all borrowed capital. This is what Daniel said. He's such a person. But that's what he would call borrowed capital. Okay, the unbeliever cannot make sense of this world, God's world, without borrowing capital from God. Okay, hope, love, forgiveness, all of that is found in Christ. Christ is hope. He is love. God is love. You know, that's all. Those are all gospel principles. Those are all found in Christ. So, because they're in the image of God, they can hope. They do love. They do forgive. They do those things, but they do it apart. You know, while simultaneously rejecting or refusing to submit to this one true God. And so they're doing those things, but at the end of the day, there's not a redemptive core to it, you know, because there's a refusal. I don't want to say everybody in the movement, but I'm just talking in general to answer this question. Is that they're not doing so in a way that's submitted to Christ, you know. They're not doing so in a, in a way that's consciously saying, Christ is Lord, you know, and this is why I have hope. This is why I love. This is why. You know, I'm forgiven. It's not rooted through the power of the gospel. You know, so it's a counterfeit, if you will. Okay? So the unbeliever, at always and at every point, they're suppressing the truth um, in some way because God, we, there's a Latin term called corndeo. We live before the face of God every minute of every day. You know, so it's kind of like a beach ball we're pressing into the, the water, we're trying to keep it down. That's what the unbeliever is doing. God is always revealing himself, yet the unbeliever is oftentimes not wanting, you know, to submit to this truth that they know. But they're going to talk about hope. They're going to talk about love. And they'll probably do it well. Oftentimes, they sometimes do it better than us. Okay? Because we got indwelling sins, and we got some issues that God has to help us with. But, but that's what you're seeing there in play. I think that you can be co-belligerent and join BLM personally. I'm not saying, I'm not binding anybody's conscience to that, but I think that believers can do that. And there's entry points to that, and I've actually done a talk about that. I think that there's ways for us to do that, because there are things in gospel principles that they do affirm. They won't say it's tied to the gospel, right? but they do affirm it. Why? Because they're image bearers. This is why this is important to understand that, okay? So, hopefully that's helpful. Yes. So, have you made this presentation to... The, the more unbelieving side of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. yeah, good. Not yet. What I do plan to do or hope to do is convert this talk into an article. And I'm hoping to, God willing, if it's accepted. I don't know. They might think it's too Jesus-y. But we're going to see what happens. <laughs> I want to. <laughs> I'm wondering is, you know, just 
what you were saying earlier in answer to that question there about we're in public God and responsibility of duty and obligation mm-hmm. before God, but there's lots of said there's parts of Black Lives Movement a platform where as Christians it's hard to Can't go there, right? Right, right, right. And so how do you you know how I'm just curious how what you're trying to do how it's received by folks. Right, no agree with your Oh you know what? It's funny. So I did okay. I, I do want to convert this talk into an article, so my point, I want to get it published into like more of a, what people would consider a secular, I don't believe in the sacred-secular divide, but I'm just saying that so you guys know what I'm saying. But so I'm wanting to put it more so into like a secular type of publication to see, you know, where a lot of BLM, you know, um, sympathizers or activists would actually read it. So we'll see. What they, I don't know if they'll take it or not. They might throw it out, and that's fine. They can do that. It's their prerogative. You know, but truth is truth. So it's not going to change. But now I have done a talk on how the church can engage BLM, and I'm going to do it again next month and talk about actual entry points on how we can actually engage and what that looks like. And there was when I gave that talk initially, there was actually a couple of BLM activists there in the crowd. I was like, well, now they're believers, though. You know, so that kind of makes a little bit of a difference. But, but they were totally amening what I had to say. So that was encouraging, you know. So, but but it's not a monolith. You got you got believers in the movement. You have unbelievers in the movement, you know. And to me, it's just an evangelistic opportunity, if you ask me. Which is why I'm always trying to broaden the tent. This is why I think this is helpful because it's like it doesn't exclude anybody. You know, we're all included under this umbrella. So, so anyways, you can talk to me. I, I think we have to go now. But it, but I'm here for questions. If you want to come up afterwards. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.